0: Good evening, everyone. It's uh, good to see everyone here at the chapel and folks on Zoom. I presume everyone can hear me on Zoom. I know people here can hear me, so I I assume it's all good. So for tonight, um, I'm going to take you back to last summer. Uh, It's hard to believe this summer is almost over, but I'm just going to go back to last summer. Uh, We were given uh, an opportunity to speak uh, it was about 15 minutes. It was just uh, a way to get us to, to come up and speak. And, and I'm still speaking. Um, so the, the topic I chose last summer, it was a, a topic that spoke to me or speaks to me often, uh, constantly speaks to me. And it's the topic of, uh, how am I walking? And, Obviously, it wasn't about my it wasn't about my physical walk, but it was about my spiritual walk. And I had broken down the uh, the topic into basically three different parts. Uh, first is why do we do a Christian walk? Uh, second is how to do a Christian walk, and third uh, is what is a Christian walk? And as I look back, I, I thought, well, 15 minutes on that topic is, is barely scratching the surface because it's, it's a topic you could spend an entire weekend speaking on. So I thought, well, you know, uh, I'll just, you know, study it a bit more and drill down a bit more on just one specific part. And, uh, in particular, I wanted to look at, um, how. To do the Christian walk, so we'll we'll spend the next half hour tonight and look at that and and see how how we do it. Okay, all right. So gotta got my glasses on now. Um, so. Um. Yeah. Um. As I as I pointed out last time, uh, we're not meant to do the Christian walk on our own strength. We need God's help. And God promised us and gave us a helper. Um, In John 14, verse 15, uh, the Lord says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you i will not leave you orphans i will come to you this is a promise from the lord we're not this is not just our imagination that the spirit is in us to help us the god gave it to us Um the note uh, there's a distinction that at the time uh, the spirit was dwelling with the disciples, just like in the Old Testament when uh, uh, the spirit made himself known to the people of God and even filled them with the spirit. The indwelling only happened after the Lord's death and resurrection, not just to the disciples, but given To all believers. So it's in all of us who believe. The spirit is with us but also in us. He is our helper. Paul reaffirms this truth. Again in Romans 8. Verse 9 to 11. Paul says but you are not in the flesh. But in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, having the same spirit who indwells in us doesn't mean that all believers are now clones. We didn't just become robots. God has still left us free will as to how we exercise the spirit in us. Because love comes out of free will. We cannot force someone to love, and God doesn't want to either. The work of the Holy Spirit is not equal in everyone. There are some who are just more in tune with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it is a sign of spiritual maturity. Maybe some people are just more gifted that way. Some more spiritual and some less, but all have the same spirit. God has given us a broad range of gifts and talents And personally, it's a bit of a mystery to me why people's abilities are so vastly different in spiritual matters, but also in non-spiritual matters. Having said that, God's word also talks about how sinful or how our sinful nature is able to quench the spirit or hinder the work of the spirit. So as believers, we must show the evidence of the spirit We cannot let our sinful nature rule. As believers in the body of Christ, we all have the spirit indwelling in us. But for the spirit to work in us, Paul also tells us we need to be filled with his spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. To be drunk with wine is not compatible with the filling of a spirit. In fact, to be drunk with wine is not compatible with many things in practical terms. Because wine takes over your mental and physical state. Why? It's known as impairment and leads to a lack of self-control and judgment. Interestingly enough, wine or consumable alcohol is also referred to as spirits. spirits that are completely opposite to the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just wine or alcohol in which is dissipation. Looking up the definition of dissipation, it actually has several meanings. In the context of Paul's writing, though, it means to indulge in extravagant, intemperate, or dissolute pleasure. Likewise, to be consumed by the things of this world in such manner also takes away from the filling of the Spirit. It's not necessarily just wine. So, first we have the indwelling of the Spirit because we've put our trust and faith in Christ. Second, His spirit continually helps us in our walk when we're filled by him. Why the Lord referred to his spirit as the helper. We need his help. And the filling is an ongoing process through life. Because challenges and temptations don't stop. We continue to face them in our lifetime. I came across this quote recently and and thought it was quite catchy. And the quote goes like this, says, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit becomes a resident. When you get filled, the Holy Spirit becomes the president. When he's president, he's in control. He fills us, and we're under his influence. We're not letting the desires of the flesh win. But if he's simply a resident, it means the flesh is getting priority and we're acting out on the basis of the flesh. Grammatically, the difference between resident and president is simply the letter P. Add a P to resident, you get president. P, as in powered by the Spirit. So when we're powered by the Spirit, we're filled by the Spirit. He is president. So going back to the Christian walk, uh, God's word instructs us in many ways how to do this. But tonight we're going to look at Paul's writing to the Thessalonians in his first letter. Towards the uh, the end of the letter, he instructs the Thessalonians how to how they should conduct themselves. They were a young church at the time, and the believers needed direction. We're no longer a young church; we live in a different setting and culture, but those instructions are just as valid today. So for tonight, we're going to look at verses 12 to 22, where Paul provides some practical examples of the Christian law, how a believer ought to conduct themselves. I'm going to read these verses in the uh, New Living Translation. So starting at verse 12, it says, Oh, sorry, Uh, chapter 5. Someone's paying attention, I'm glad. I forgot to include that in my note. I I write it so much that I forgot to include the chapter. That's good, chapter 5. So, verse 12, chapter 5. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you, and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work, and live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful, never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. So breaking down these verses, back to verse 12, Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. But when Paul says to honor those who are the leaders, he's referring to the leaders or elders of the church. Those who are working hard to shepherd and guide the church spiritually. Spiritually. Note how Paul writes, work hard, because it's not an easy job. Not looking for brownie points here, but I think it's a tough job to be an elder. It's, uh, it's a big responsibility and perhaps underappreciated. Paul says to honor, respect them for the work they do. They dedicate their time, effort, and resources to shepherd the body of, the body of believers being an elder is more than just a title it's hard work and to continue on paul says show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work not to just respect your elders but to show them great respect for the work they do to show them love wholehearted love really appreciate the work they do be thankful respectful, and loving as they minister to us the best they can as they serve the Lord in that role. Paul emphasizes work three times with, with respect to the elders because it's work. They make decisions when times or circumstances are challenging. And I can think of a pandemic was a, was a, perfect example of it they had to balance you know the government and health authority and at the same time keep the church going keeping the body of uh, keeping the body body of believers steadfast in the faith at the same time looking after the logistics directly or indirectly i i just remember uh all i had to do is just sign up online book my spot and I just show up on Sunday morning and you know just so, go where, I, where where do I sit but in but in and just in that simple assignment of seating that took a lot of work because you had to keep in keep in mind all the social distancing the families and individuals and and all that good stuff so you know a lot of times it may seem like a simple task but but there's a lot of work that goes behind it and that's just one example And finally, verse 13 continues on to say, and live peacefully with each other. Meaning, not to just live peacefully with the elders, but to live peacefully with everyone. Starting with the brothers and sisters in Christ, and extending that to our neighbors. To quarrel and infighting is definitely not the work of the Spirit in us. Living peacefully starts at home, our church home, so to speak. We ought to get along even even though even when we have differences of opinion or personality conflicts. Verse 14, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. There are actually four instructions there in that one verse. So we'll we'll break them down into four different parts. The first instructions, Paul says, We urge you to warn those who are lazy. In love, Paul wants us to correct the behavior not according to God's design. Laziness is not part of God's. Design. From the moment he created Adam, in Genesis, we read that Adam was made to work the land. In practical terms, to be willfully lazy only leads to ruin. Solomon, not known as the wisest king who lived, he writes in the book of Proverbs, reminds us of that. In Proverbs 6... Verse six to eleven, he he he, he says, uh, "Go to the ant you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Which, having no captain, or overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber or sluggard?" When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall poverty come on to you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Even Paul in his second letter to the Thessalonians says, For even when we were with you, sorry, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, in the second letter, He says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. The second instruction in that verse is, Paul says, encourage those who are timid. Timid are are those whose spirits are down, whose confidence is down. Maybe those who lack courage due to past failures or circumstances, they find themselves in. Maybe they're afraid to fail again and need reassurance to be lifted up. They need to be encouraged and strengthened to know the body of brothers and sisters are there for them. If things don't work out again. Third instruction, Paul says... Take tender care of those who are weak. Weak, weak doesn't necessarily mean physically weak. It can it can certainly certainly mean that, and it is easier to see and help someone who's physically weak. But that's also what we don't see. We are to care for those emotionally weak, and or spiritually weak as well. Those emotionally weak maybe need someone to talk to. They need to share their burden with someone to know others have compassion, that they care. Those spiritually weak maybe need help to steer them away from temptation. They need help to strengthen their faith. So although the outer being looks fine, when it's not a physical weakness... The inner being is not, sometimes. It is weak. So we are to take tender care of those who are weak. So finally, the last instruction in in verse, in, uh, in verse 14 is to be patient with everyone. Key word here is everyone. Everyone, believers and unbelievers. Difficult people or difficult circumstances you find yourself in with others. When we have acted out on our impatience by our our actions or or words, the consequences and damage done go much deeper. We can never rewind and erase actions or, or words we eventually regret. Do we have different standards of patience depending on who it is? It should always be the same. Starting with the ones we love and extending that to strangers. Verse 15, see that no one pays evil, pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. There's a common saying, don't get mad, get even. That's definitely not the Christian way. Paul reminds us in Roman 12, verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If we've been wrong according to the rule of law, we have a legal system that will render judgment. It's not perfect, but we're blessed to live in a society with a dem- democratic rule of law. Ultimately, Paul says to leave it to God. He He will take care of all the wrongs in the end. Instead, try to do good by loving and forgiving each other. Verse 16 and 17 kind of go together. says, always be joyful. Never stop praying. Well, these two verses are not meant to be a 24-7 application, as that's not practical or or realistic. Rather, it's a mindset that we should have to always be able to rejoice and to pray. Times or circumstances may be tough, but to know we have a greater hope should always be reason for joy. Uh, Joy is not happiness. Happiness is a feeling. It comes and goes and very much depends on the circumstances we're in, which don't last. Knowing God is faithful, knowing we are in him, we have reason to rejoice, always. Of course, when times are good, we have reason to rejoice for the blessings we have. But times are not always good. Likewise, times or circumstances may be tough, but we can always pray. Knowing God always hears us. There's no time or place that limits when or where we can pray. There's no occasion when we are unable to pray. God is omnipresent. To have fellowship and conversation with God is ongoing. It doesn't have to cease. It can be done anywhere and anytime. Verse 18, Paul says, Be thankful in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you, who belong to Christ Jesus. We don't give thanks for everything, but we give thanks in everything. It's a subtle but significant difference. We don't give thanks for the difficult situations we find us we find we find ourselves in, but in God, recognizing that God is in control of everything, we can be thankful. The second part of that, verse 4, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'd like to think applies to the last three verses we just read, not just verse 18. Because God's will for us is a new paradigm. It's a new way of thinking, meaning to always be able to rejoice, to pray, be thankful, because that's what God wants. He wants us to know he's in charge, to trust him despite the reality we're facing. It's his will for us in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. In other words, do not cut off or extinguish the spirit. In the early days of the church, as we read in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit manifested itself as a fire. It literally meant not to extinguish the fire but it can only be used as a metaphor today. Paul instructs us not to extinguish the fire figuratively, but to keep it burning, to let the power of the Spirit keep working in us. Verse 20, Paul says, do not scoff at prophecies. The Thessalonians were not so much scoffing prophecies in God's word, they were not rejecting scriptures. It has been suggested that they were instead rejecting the people who were abusing their positions in speaking God's word for personal gain or perhaps even teaching false doctrine. But the next instruction that Paul gives also says to test everything that is spoken we always have God's word as the reference point and God's spirit to guide us to the truth. Verse 21, test everything that is said. And then the uh, the second half of uh, verse 21, uh, hold on to what is good, can almost be read as a separate verse. You hold on to what is good, again, as measured according to the standard of God's word. Not what the world defines as good, because then it becomes a subject subjective matter. Everyone has their own view of what is good or what truth is. As Pilate put it to the Lord in John 18, 38. Pilate said to him, to the Lord, what is truth? And keeping on with that same verse, hold on to what is good, is complemented by the next verse, which is verse 22. Stay away from every kind of evil. When we've tested all things and hold on to what is good, stands opposite to every aspect of evil. Why we stay away and reject every kind of evil. The good Samaritan in that parable is what is good. Loving and helping a neighbor in need. Evil is when, as John points out in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Of course, what appears evil may not always be evil. The Lord was criticized for dining with sinners. Is it evil to hang out with sinners? Only if you plan to join them in their sinful ways, but not to get get them to change their ways. Context always matters. We should not be judgmental, but when our actions are done in truth and love, we do good. Why we always pray for God to be empowered by, by God's Spirit and His wisdom. Um, Paul Paul in, in in his letters understood the challenges the newly established uh, churches faced in their Christian walk. It's no different today, although the Christian faith is. Established 2,000 years later now, challenges remain because the devil is hard at work to keep it that way. So Paul reminds us, as he did to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse verse 9 to 12, this is what he says. And this is a reminder for us too. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, for all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you, to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. And to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 20, he he emphasizes how this continues on for generations, not just people at the time. Chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Ephesians, Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In practical terms, though, as we live out our day-to-day activities, Paul simply captures how to walk the Christian life, I think, in this one simple verse. As he reminded the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We do things in Jesus' name means we're letting the Spirit work in us to accomplish what we're doing and honor Him at the same time. We can be empowered by God's Spirit to do things that are in the big picture for God's glory in the community community of believers and equally to the outside world as well. We want to be set apart. Coincidentally, this verse is used as the the motto for staff, volunteer staff, of course, at at, at Galilee Bible Camp. Uh, I have experienced it like so many who have volunteered at camp doesn't matter the job or responsibility you're given. We do it joyfully for the Lord. But it doesn't have to be just a camp. It can be applied everywhere.